He expects older adults to be able to communicate life change, to be able to share with younger people from experience and from their wisdom of Scripture how to proceed in life. The church is diverse. You cannot read this chapter. You cannot read Acts 13 where you find a multiracial church. Listen, the only reason a church should be homogeneous is if the immediate community around them is only homogeneous. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we reach the end of our study in the Book of Romans. As Pastor Brogi has spent the last few days in chapter 16, he has echoed the concerns of the Apostle Paul regarding the prevalence of false teachers in the church. As we wrap up our series, Dr. Brogy looks at a corresponding passage from the book of James. James is an apostle, Galatians tells us. He's not one of the original apostles. He's one of the later apostles. He's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. They both had, of course, a different father. Jesus was conceived by God the Spirit, James, by Joseph. And we read in James chapter 4, and let's pick it up in um, verse 4 so we can get the context. He's speaking of Christians who are guilty of spiritual adultery. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's a good summary of an unbeliever. God tells believers, because it's possible even for a believer to love the world, don't love the world nor the things that are in the world because it's passing away. But on the other hand, it is what marks an unbeliever. Then listen to verse 5. Or do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires, and the word desire is the word uh, that literally means lust. Sometimes the word lust is used positively in the Word of God. This is a positive rendition of it. The Spirit of God lusts, or God lusts through the Spirit of God. He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now listen to how verse 6 begins. But He gives a greater grace. God gives a greater grace. There's not only saving grace, there's growing grace. That's why Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I get this greater grace that will give me the ability not to be worldly, but to be holy, more like Christ, and to do His will? Well, he's going to tell you how to become a recipient of this greater grace. Let's read the rest of the verse. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, then, if God gives grace to the humble, what are the marks of a humble person? James mentions two aspects. First, in verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. That's the first mark. Submission to God, or going back to what we just read in Romans 16, loving that which is agathos, that which is good. I mean, think your way through that for a second. When you are doing your will, instead of God's will, you're not in submission to God. The devil's sin was a sin of pride. Five times over, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. 
lack of submission is pride. Pride is the exact opposite of humility. And so when your heart says, I want to find out about this evil, I'm curious about it, I want to entertain my sin nature on it, I want to educate myself in impurity, you're doing the opposite of submission, and that is pride. So first, if we are to be a recipient of greater grace, then we must admit this admonition and submit to God. But then secondly, he tells us we are to resist the devil. And the promise associated with it is that when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Have you ever thought of the devil fleeing from you? For most of us, the idea is ridiculous. We think, well, if we can just get the devil to leave me alone, I'd be happy. No, God wants the devil to flee from you. And if you submit to God, if you educate yourself in that which is good, if you are naive to that which is evil, then that becomes a reality. Now go back to our text in Romans 16. Let me bring the two verses together again. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and or then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will quickly, shortly... As you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, get the devil running from you. He will crush him under your feet. Now, that's Paul's final admonition. Let me bring this in for a landing with Paul's closing remarks, his closing remarks. He brings now this great letter to a close. He says in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, Tertius who writes this letter, greet you in the Lord, and he mentions Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus, and so on and so forth, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and to him who is able. That's usually the way we read these verses. Who cares about Sosipater, and Tertius, and Quartus, and Gaius, and Erastus? Well, God does, and he chose to name these eight people in the book of Romans. Now remember, in verses 1 through 15, Paul is greeting people. But in verses 21 to 23, Christians who are in the city of Corinth with Paul from where he writes the book of Romans, they are sending greetings with him. Who are these people? Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, he greets you. You know Timothy. He's mentioned in a number of epistles and throughout the Acts. We know that Timothy was young when he met Paul. We know he was physically weak. He was uh, a recipient of what Paul termed frequent ailments. He was no Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was a tiny Tim. We know that psychologically he would have been dubbed an introvert. He was easily intimidated. Spiritually, he came from a broken home. His mother was a believer. His father was an unbeliever. But he's converted to Jesus as, as the Messiah on Paul's first missionary journey. And he ends up traveling with Paul. Paul calls him his son in the faith. He's associated with Paul for 15 years. And in the process, he becomes a great man of God. He ended up uh, pastoring the church at Ephesus. And if church tradition is correct, he died a martyr's death. Two letters, of course, in the New Testament are written to him. And he's mentioned in over half of Paul's epistles. Timothy... My fellow worker greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason, Sosipater, my kinsmen, which tells you right off they are fellow Jews. Look at verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. What does the name Tertius mean? It's a number in Greek. It means third. How would you like to be named third? We'll come back to that in a moment. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, remember, we know from the other epistles, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that Paul had an eye problem. Uh, We're told in Galatians 4, 
He said, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness, if possible. In the past, he said, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. When he concludes his letter to the Galatians, he said, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It appears on Paul's first missionary journey, maybe he contracted malaria. He had an eye problem. It would certainly coincide with what he writes concerning the timing of a thorn in the flesh. Some people think the thorn in the flesh was Paul's eye problem. It was some kind of physical ailment. No one can say dogmatically. But in either case, Paul would use an amanuensis. He would dictate the letter and someone would write it. And at the end of the letter, he would say, look with my own hand, here's the distinguishing mark, so you know that this is not a fraudulent letter. And so as Tertius is taking down Paul's dictation, he says, hey, brother Paul, I know some of the believers there in Rome. Do you mind? Can I greet them? And the Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit gives him freedom. And he says, sure, go ahead, Tertius. And so Tertius sends a greeting. Verse 23, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Who's Gaius? Well, we know him from 1 Corinthians. He lives in the city of Corinth. He's a man that Paul baptized. And we're told here that he hosted Paul and the whole church, which tells you what? He was a wealthy man. He had a large home for the whole church there in the city to be able to meet there. Look at the next guy, Erastus. The city treasurer greets you. He's a city administer, administrator. He's a public official of sorts, and he sends his greeting. And Quartus, the brother. What's the word Quartus mean? It's the Greek word for fourth. So we have third and fourth who both say hello. Who are these guys? They were slaves. Because in the first century, you didn't name slaves, you numbered slaves. And so the grace of God is able to take this diverse group of people, Jewish people, a man who's half Jewish, half Greek, a public official, slaves, and he brings them into one. The playing field, the serving field becomes level by the grace of God. There's no spirit in there, I'm better than you. Listen, grace, when it is preached, it shatters all human pride. It shatters any kind of prejudice, be it racial, economic, educational. It totally dismantles it. And so he says in verse 24 in his final benediction, the grace of our Lord Christ, Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then he says, now to him who is able, to him who is dunameno, we get our word dynamite from it. I'm reminded of the power of the message that God enables us to share with people. It has a way of penetrating hearts and breaking down the hardest of hearts. Now to him who is able to establish you. See that word establish? It's the Greek word sterizo. We get our word steroids from it. Steroids, when used for the right reason, can be a good thing. It can help someone with a weakness or a disability or get past some disease. Well, how does God make us solid Christians? Now, to him who is able to steroid you, how? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Number one, you have to hear the gospel. And number two, you have to preach Christ. And that's what we do here every week. The whole book is about the Lord Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures speak of him. Now, it's a little awkward in the original, but it's helpful. Literally, it says, according to my gospel, even the preaching about Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is Jesus Christ. We know God as we are able to know him because of Jesus Christ. And this world needs some hope 
This world needs some life and they need to know something about the afterlife and they know nothing of either because they are lost as we once were. But by the grace of God, someone preached Jesus to us. And so this good news about Christ is according, notice, to the revelation, follow, of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now the word mystery conjures up in our mind typically something that's mysterious. And so we think of ancient religions or modern cults as being mysterious. But that's not the idea in these verses. Context that will show you that and even a word study. The Greek word mysterion is not used of something that is mysterious, but something that is not understood. I stood at a graveside a few days ago and I reminded them from 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. What was the mystery? A mystery, mysterion, was something that was there, but it was hidden, but has now been revealed. Paul in Ephesians 2 speaks of the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, that God was going to use one people, the Jewish people, as his exclusive voice box to the world. But the mystery that has now been revealed, just like it was no mystery that God would raise the dead, but what was a mystery that was now revealed, it was there in the Old Testament, in types and in pictures, was that there would be a generation of people who would not see death, that God would come and he would catch up his people. We call it the rapture, the rapture, the catching up of the church. And what God had not revealed in the Old Testament was that he was going to build an international community from every tribe, tongue, and nation that would be his people. So even in the Old Testament times, think of Jesus himself. He's Messiah. He is a descendant of Abraham. But who else is in his lineage? A Moabitess by the name of Ruth, not to mention other Gentiles like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. And so while the Lord, the Lord Jesus came for the lost house of the, of the people of Israel, he also came to us who are Gentiles. And so God has created now a body of people that he is able to bring together as one people. Why? Because of the forgiveness brought through the blood of the cross and two, through the indwelling presence of the spirit. And God has glued us together to be one people. And so wherever you go in the world, when you meet truly born-again people, whatever race, whatever nation, whatever tribe, whatever tongue, you see people who love each other, who care for each other, who have an immediate affinity for each other. Why? Because of the power of the gospel to change lives. Follow this mystery that was once hidden has now been manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, referring to the Old Testament, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to who? To all nations, leading to obedience of faith. Remember that expression? Obedience of faith. Stay tuned here. I'm almost done, all right? Been three and a half years. Stay with me. (laughs) Obedience of faith. What does that mean? Roman Catholics say that we are saved by faith and works, and they use Romans 1.5, the first time we saw this phrase, and here Romans 16.26, and they say, here it is, you know, you're saved not only by grace through faith, but grace through faith plus works. No, 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 Romans has shattered that idea, that anyone could even help save himself by anything that he does. So what is he speaking of? He's speaking about the change that comes about in a life when a person truly receives Jesus as Lord. 
the obedience of faith. You are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. If you have met the living God, then your life will change because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And if your life has not changed, then you have an empty faith. And so he speaks of the obedience of faith, notice, that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. In our day, we want to offer people fire insurance. We want to promise them heaven. We want to promise them the benefits of the cross without taking the one who died on that cross. And you cannot dichotomize what Jesus did on his cross from who he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you truly come to him for forgiveness of sin, then you are willing to admit that sin is evil, that is wrong, and you want God to change it. And if you have no desire for God to change your sin, then you have really no true desire for genuine forgiveness. And so the NIV rightly renders it, the NIV 84, the obedience that comes from faith. It's a paraphrase, but it captures it. And so now the final benediction to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Now, how are we going to apply this passage? Let me give you three applications in the form of questions that I would like us to ask ourselves this morning. Number one, ask yourself, have you lost your spiritual edge by trafficking in evil? Have you lost your spiritual edge? We just read in verse 19, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. Do you know why some Christians have no real power in leading people to Jesus Christ? It's because of moral and mental compromise in their hearts. Do you know why some Christians have no discernment and they can walk into a church like Perry Nobles and think it's wonderful? Because of moral compromise in the heart. Do you know why some Christians are unable to raise their children for Christ and to impact them? Because of moral compromise in the heart. Listen, you cannot traffic in filth and expect God to use you. And in this day and age, we have some serious, serious decisions to make. You cannot expect your children and your grandchildren to love God with all of their heart if you don't love God with all of your heart. God wants us to be a babe in the woods when it comes to evil. You can attend Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, but if you are filling your heart with evil as well, you are canceling it all out. And so I meet people who are knowledgeable in the scriptures, but they have no real life change. Why? Because you cannot mix truth with filth and expect a good byproduct. There's a choice you must make. My second question is, do you see yourself as an equal in the body of Christ? Do you see yourself as an equal? You know, I can't read any of the closing greetings in any of Paul's epistles or read of the uh, makeup of the church as described in the Acts and not see diversity. And yet the megachurch movement is telling us that if we want to reach the community for Christ, then we need to be a homogeneous church. We need to choose our audience. And so Rick Warren, bless his heart, his goal is good. He wants to win people to Christ, but he has introduced into the church the wrong methodology that has helped to destroy the church. The radio station, he would say, that is successful has to choose a format. He would say you can't be country and classical and Christian and rock and roll. If you're going to have an audience, you have to choose a format. And so he would liken that to the church. If you are going to win your community for Christ, you need to choose your audience. Listen, number one, the church is not a radio station. Number two, 
God's audience is anyone who breathes. And so typically the mega church, when you find out, well, who's your audience? Well, you know, Saddleback Sam or Saddleback Sally, you know, he's an upper middle class, upwardly mobile person, you know, makes between 80 and 120 grand a year. It's never, I want some poor Hispanic person. I want some poor white person. It's not, I want some uneducated person. It's not, I want some old person. I want some young, upwardly mobile person between 25 and 35. That's who I want in my church. My friend, that is evil. God expects His church to be diversified. God assumes in Titus 2 that there's older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He expects older adults to be able to communicate life change, to be able to share with younger people from experience and from their wisdom of Scripture how to proceed in life. The church is diverse. You cannot read this chapter. You cannot read Acts 13 where you find a multiracial church. Listen, the only reason a church should be homogeneous is if the immediate community around them is only homogeneous. But there's very few rare places in America that is like that. So if there's black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Chinese, Japanese, rich, poor, educated, uneducated in the community, then the church should be that. And if they are not, then they have expressed a form of spiritual prejudice. God has called us to reach anyone that moves, anyone that breathes. So we have a politician in this church. We have slaves in this church. We have a, a man who's wealthy in this church at Rome, a very diverse church. Third and finally, I would ask, can you say with the Apostle Paul that this gospel is my gospel? Now, he opened this great letter in the introduction. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's my life first. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I told my wife, if you're going to print a verse on my casket, put that on there, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Can you say that the gospel is my gospel? Now, he calls it in Romans 1, 1, God's gospel. And it is indeed God's gospel. It all originated from him. But it had become such a part of Paul's life that he could say it was my gospel. Do you share it? Do you speak it? Do you, by the way you live this week, can you say that it is my gospel? By the things that you spoke this week, can you say it is my gospel? God wants it to be. Maybe it's not because you've never received Christ, or maybe you've received Him, but it has not so penetrated your life and so changed your person that you cannot but say it is my gospel. That's what God wants for us. A small group of sports fishermen were in Scotland and one of the finest restaurants there in Edinburgh very classy five-star restaurant. And they got together to tell their fish stories at the end of the day. And I suppose like most fish stories, they got kind of large. And one man with a sweeping hand movement hit the waitress and the pot of tea went all over the beautiful whitewashed wall. And he was so embarrassed, an awful brown stain. He felt terrible, apologetic. He immediately offered to pay for it. And a man immediately jumped out of his seat at his table and said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And he took a crayon from his pocket and he began to sketch around that brown stain and he made a beautiful royal stag. They soon found out it was Sir Edward Lancer, the foremost painter of animals in the world. And he turned that stain into something beautiful. 
And that wall to this day is set aside as a special wall and the most prized wall in that evening establishment. We've been in Romans for over three years. And we've learned that our life has been stained by sin. And no amount of apology can change anything. And you can't pay for your salvation. You cannot merit salvation. And if you want to, you will in the end end up in hell. Because your righteousness is as a filthy rag. And the kind of righteousness that you need is the kind of righteousness that God can give. And He can only give it through the bloodstained cross of Calvary. And God is making a beautiful picture, not with a crayon, but with the precious blood of His Son. And He's making and forming a beautiful church. It's called His Bride, and He wants you to be a part of it. And so it's so fitting for Paul to close this epistle. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. And then he ends a single sentence with one word. Amen. The Greek word amen means I believe it. I agree. In chapter 1, he describes God as the one who alone deserves our worship and our praise. And then he says, Amen, I believe it. In chapter 9, he speaks of God as a sovereign God who rules and reigns in the affairs of nation, who is to be blessed forever. And then he says, Amen, I believe it. In chapter 11, he speaks of the glory of God, that God alone is worthy of glory. And then he says, Amen. I believe it. And then when he comes to this chapter, he speaks of the wisdom of God and the grace of God through Jesus Christ where God is able to bring into one group a bride for His Son. And he says, Amen. I believe it. And there's only one question that remains. Do you believe it? Now our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Thank You for the magnificence of Christ. Thank You that You would let us saturate our minds in this book for over three years. Thank You for giving me the strength to preach it. May we be forever changed because of our exposure to the Word of God. May we, with Paul, say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. May we, with Paul, say, this is my Gospel. I own it. I've been entrusted with it to take it to a lost and unbelieving world. Father, we know our only hope for this nation is not political, but spiritual. That unless the hearts of minds and people are changed, we are going to continue to plunge into evil, into sin, and self-destruct. But we thank You that You have entrusted us as Your ambassadors to take this good news to the world. May we be faithful. Father, I pray today for someone who has come, who knows they are stained by sin. They know they are guilty, but they have no assurance of heaven. Thank You for Your promise that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help some dear soul in simple childlike faith to simply say, Lord Jesus, Save me. Thank you for your saving grace. Thank you that we will spend eternity praising you and worshiping you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been listening to the final message in our series from the Book of Romans. And if you'd like to hear this or any of the messages in the series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. If you prefer a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. And for today's message, request program ROM74. If this series in Romans has been a blessing to you, please consider helping support the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Your generous donation will help the broadcast continue to be heard locally and around the globe. You can give a one-time or recurring gift at searchthescriptures.org or by clicking the Donate button on the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow we'll begin a new series in the Book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.